That was the perfect song for our theme this morning. I was uh, very blessed with that song. <clears throat> wow, there's a lot of people here this morning. That's wonderful. <clears throat> and uh, thankful for that. I want to greet you in the name of Jesus. We want to worship Jesus today, worship God today together. <clears throat> For those of you who haven't been here before, we've been working at memorizing two verses out of John chapter 7, We're memorizing it out of the King James Version. And so let's just stand together and say verses 37 and 38. Let's go ahead and stand. If you don't know it by memory, you can turn to your Bible. John 7, verse 37 and 38, and we're starting in the middle of verse 37 with the word Jesus. We'll say both verses together and then... Say the reference at the end, all together. Jesus stood and cried, saying, If any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. He that believeth on me, as the scripture hath said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. John 7, 37 and 38. Thank you. You may be seated. <clears throat> I've shifted gears a number of times this week, and I trust it's, this is the Lord that's pushing those gears and not me. Um, <clears throat> I told the youth a couple times this week that we wanted to have a session for them, and then the funeral changed the timing a little bit, which that was all in God's hands. And where I've ended up is with youth night is right now. It's this morning. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> it's youth day, I guess. And so uh, this way we could also make sure that all the grown-ups would come, because sometimes grown-ups don't come when it's youth night. But sorry about that, folks. You're all here, and you have to be here anyway. <clears throat> but really, seriously, um, this message is not... I'm just going to look at the youth, but the message is for all of us. It fits every one of us. I don't care how old you are or young you are. It's for all of us. The title that I... And so we're, we're going to have two sessions... And it's just a lot of material, and I hope that, um, just pray for me that God would have, give me the wisdom to know what to leave out. I tend to put too much in. And um, so I just call it, the whole thing today, we call it, I'm calling it Youth with Influence. Thank you, brother. <clears throat> how beautiful it is, how powerful it is to have youth in our churches. Can I have an amen on that one? Grounded youth who know where they stand. And by the way, if you're older, just think in your mind, grounded 50-year-old who knows where you stand. Teachable youth who are like a sponge. Honest youth who confess their sins and admit their struggles. Youth who aren't spending their single years on the playground. They're soldiers Preparing and already engaging in the battle. <clears throat> Youth like this are unusual. Youth like this are influential. And so that's where I come to our theme today, Youth with Influence. <clears throat> I believe God wants to change the world through influence. Through Christian influence. You know, we can't hold people at gunpoint but we may influence them. 
And so the method that God wants to use is the, I call it the pressure or the squeeze of the Holy Spirit. You ever thought about what, what gets ketchup out of a ketchup bottle? You know, what you really need is the, is the ketchup. But how do you get it out of the bottle? Well, it's the, it's the squeeze. And I think that's, in a similar way, that's the, Holy, that's the way the Holy Spirit works. When he puts the squeeze on a life, on a godly person, it's influential. Just like a brother that, that we buried yesterday. Christian influence is God being able to release the pressure of the Holy Spirit through me, through you. Influence comes at a cost. So I want to look at four areas today. Uh, keys, I call it. Costs and keys that would, that would produce alignment in my life and unlock the influence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I'm thinking, I'm kind of aiming youth, uh, I'm kind of aiming this target at being influential in your church, that you, as a young person, will have influence in your church. But it's not just in church, and we're kind of be aiming at that target this morning, but God can use you to influence your, your, where you're working, your school, um, your, your home, and, and really anywhere if the flow of the Spirit is, is if the Spirit has put a squeeze upon you. <clears throat> But I believe it is costly. You know, think of someone that you know who has been very, in a spiritual, on a spiritual level, has been very influential in your life. That influence upon you came at a cost to them. You can't just be on the playground, so to speak, and have a lot of influence. And so somebody had to trade something in and give up something, some of their own priorities and goals perhaps, and stuff they would have rather done for the sake of their calling, for the sake of, and then as they let that go and got a hold of God's calling, God squeezed their life by the Holy Spirit and it influenced you. <clears throat> now I'm going to mention four things, and um, i like to try to cover two of them in the first session and the other two in the second session. <clears throat> I'm just going to give you four words, and then we want, to, we want to explain what I mean by these four words. The first one is identity. The second one is mentality. The third one is sexuality. And the fourth one is responsibility. I'll go over that again. A right source of my identity, a, battleground, a battlefield mentality proper boundaries in sexuality, and taking ownership for responsibility. That's, the, that's, the, that's where we're going this morning. <clears throat> so in the first session, I would like to look at two things that make for youth of influence. And the first one that we want to look at is the right source of my identity, and, the, and uh, also in the first session, a battlefield mentality. <clears throat> So I'd invite you in the beginning here to turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. We want to look at that first principle for influence, a right, the right source of identity. You can turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. And here's just a few comments and trying to explain what I'm talking about here. This is something that I think I know what I mean, but I'm not sure I can explain it. Who are you really? 
You know, when I come down here, I can't help it. I'm very curious. I love to talk to people. And, and sort of when I start out, I feel like when I was at Gerald's house, I think the first place I went for, for a meal this week or this past week, I don't know Gerald very well. And so I go to his house and I'm empty. And I'm like, I don't, who, who is this guy really? And as we, as we interacted and as we talked, my, I started filling up and filling up and filling up. And I filled up with some food too. And, uh, but by the time I was done... I went away, I felt full, I felt satisfied. I, I know who this man is. I know some of his burdens, some of his concerns, some of the things that are important to him. It was wonderful. I know, I kind of know now, who is this man? <clears throat> and so I ask you, what would people say about you? Who are you really? Well, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm Clayton Schrock. I'm 21 and I work over here, however old you are. But that's not what I'm asking. You know, what I really want to know is, what, what is it that really gets you going? What is it that brings you joy? What gives you meaning? What, what brings you purpose and fulfillment in life? That is what I'm talking about. That is your identity. That's what I'm talking about. As humans, our tendency is to identify with the things that make us feel validated. And that's a big word I had to look up in the dictionary. Validated just means... What makes someone feel valued as a person or feels that his or her ideas or opinions are worthwhile? So, it, for example, it could be playing volleyball. I have a friend that when he was in the youth, he was very good at volleyball. And, and he loved it and he thought, you know, I just love volleyball. I love playing. And, but what he didn't think about, and later he realized, you know what, I was getting validated by that. See, he, he was doing it because of what he was getting out of it. It validated him. Does that make sense? Here's another example. How about riding a Harley-Davidson motorcycle? I should ask if somebody here has one. Maybe I won't do that. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Why would somebody buy a Harley? Now, it's possible somebody would might buy it for, a, for a, just a perfectly a good reason. But here's what Mark Richer said, who is the chief marketing officer for Harley-Davidson. Here's what he said. We're not really about transportation. It's not about getting from point A to point B. It's about living life in the way you choose. What was he saying? I believe, for most people, getting a Harley is not buying transportation. It's buying identity. Does that make sense? And so put fill in the blank with whatever it is that makes you feel validated. Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your retirement fund, older folks. <laughs> uh, and I just know how it was for me as a youth. I'll just tell you some of the things that made me feel validated. My car. I had a Mustang GT with T-tops that leaked when it rained. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I had cool clothes. And I wanted to be popular. And these things all were things... Oh, oh, was I a Christian? Yeah, I was kind of sort of a Christian. I was pretty weak. <laughs> but what really got me going, what really made me feel validated was all that stuff. Can anybody here identify with that? <laughs> all right. <clears throat> Our identity is crucial. And as a Christian... I need to, over the course of a lifetime, take on the identity of Jesus Christ. 
So just like tossing a log into the fire, when you, when you first throw it in, you say, the, log, the, the wood is in the fire. And you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning and check the fire, and you realize the fire is in the wood. <laughs> and it's like that way with Jesus Christ. You know, when you become a Christian, you get into Jesus. And over the course of your life, it should be somebody looks at you and they say, man, the fire is in the wood. Look at that. Over the course of my lifetime, taking on the identity of Jesus Christ. So my identity is very crucial because what I identify with will form my identity. And forming the right identity has a lot to do with how much or how little impact or how much influence I will have in my church and for the kingdom of God. All right, I just want to look at a principle here. We're going to read two scriptures in this first part about identity. And one is sort of what not to do and one is what to do. So here's what not to do. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation of the wives. So here the context here is, here is an unbeliever and a believer in a marriage. And, and, and the believer really wants the unbeliever to be a Christian. And he's saying here that you can have influence. You, you, you can just shut up. You can just be quiet. And without any words, your life influences your life because the Holy Spirit and you lining up with him is squeezing your life and pushing on that other person to change. This is how it's supposed to be. Without the word may be won by the conversation or by the lifestyle, the conduct of the wife. While they behold, verse 2, while they behold, in other words, while the husband is watching and observing your chaste conversation coupled with fear. And what is that? Chaste conversation. That means clean, modest. It means innocent and perfect. How I conduct myself. And then fear is how I, how I act and react to the other person in the equation. So it's, it, I'm conducting myself in this way as I relate in this way to you. That is influential. <clears throat> now there's, there's an iceberg then and this is what I'm getting at about identity how we tend to as youth and not just youth see, see older folks just struggle with identity and other stuff see they don't care about their clothes anymore they wear Velcro shoes and do stuff like that but uh, we still care about it but there's an iceberg to influence that we see in verse 3 who's adorning let it not be and by the way, I noticed here that some of you use other translations, which I do as well. Um, but if you've noticed, in the New King James, in verse 3, it says, Who's adorning, let it not merely be. And just, I just want to tell you that word merely is in italics, which means it's not in the original. So some translator added that word in to make some allowance for adornment. That's what it looks like to me. Because here in the King James Version, and actually in some of the other versions, it says, Who's adorning, let it not be. Stop it. You may not. <laughs> Let it not be that outward adorning of plating the hair, of wearing of gold, buying a Mustang, you know. And I'm not saying you shouldn't buy a Mustang. What I'm saying is you can't be, that you can't be drawing your identity from that. And you know what? Isn't it true that some of these things 
we say, well, I'm not. Well, too often we don't even think about, am I, am I doing this because I'm drawing identity from it? Is that why I'm doing it? We don't tend to go that deep because the still small voice of the Spirit is he's speaking so quietly that all I can hear is this loud voice that's saying, buy that Mustang, buy that Mustang. And if we would really stop and think and be honest, we would have to admit, you know, I am buying those clothes. I'm validated by some of this stuff. Let it not be the outward. But let it be. You may not in verse 3. But in verse 4, you may, you get to, you don't have to, you get to. Let it be the hidden man, let it be the hidden. You be validated by that which is hidden. Not by your haircut, not by your hairdo, not by your sweaters, not by your music, not by Facebook. You may not. You may not be validated by these outward things, but you may. Be validated by that which is hidden. See, it's a question of the source. See, if I'm depending upon validation from, to, to form my sense of identity from that which is outside of me, then I'm all, you know, what happens when that is all taken away from me? What happens when that pipeline is taken away from me? I'm stuck. I'm struggling. So what he's saying here in verse, in verse 4 let it be the hidden man of the heart. And that which is not corruptible, nobody can reach in there and take it away from you. Even the ornament of a meek and a quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God, of great price. All this stuff we value, we value all this stuff. God doesn't value that at all. But when he sees someone that is validated by, by the hidden God looks down and says, man, I'm rich. <laughs> Look what's happened in that life of great price. <clears throat> Here's what Norman Wakefield had to say. By the way, I just want to say this. <laughs> Preachers can get validated by their ministry. Is this true? <laughs> you know, good things done for the sake of prison, prison ministry. You know, we can, we can get validated by those things. And one verse, here's a verse for you preachers, or whoever of you that's involved in ministry, spiritual work. Jesus said in Luke 10, verse 20, notwithstanding, this is after the 72 got sent out, and they came back and they said, man, even the devil submit. <laughs> this ministry stuff, you know, I used to be fishing, and man, that's, that's, that's peanuts. I'm casting out devils now. This is so much better. It's so, much, it's so rewarding. And we're, he's, they said, even the demons submit in your name. And Jesus said, in this rejoice not. Rejoice not that the spirits are subject to you, but rather... Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. You get your validation from me and me only. <laughs> Young people, do you want to have influence? <laughs> That's what it takes. And it starts with our identity. 
too often we tend to ask the wrong question when we're deciding, you know, should I get a Harley? <laughs> should I? I mean, I mean, it's really, it's just transportation. It's really not. Or we, or we say, you know, is it a sin? Is it a sin to buy a Harley? And if that's the question, then we, then we say, well, no, it's not a sin. But I think that's the wrong question. It's not the first question. The first question would probably be, am I doing this for my sense of identity or validation? You know, I think that when we demonstrate by my life, see, it's troubling when you can see. You see, people smell this about us when we're validated by even our ministry or these outer things. People smell it. There was a, there was a man that I know that was a, very involved in ministry. This is a good thing. You know what another brother said about him? He said, I think it defines him. And I thought about, hmm, that's a nice way of saying that it's not good. <laughs> so you see, when we demonstrate a need for the outward, when people look at your life, you don't have to say anything. But when people look at your life, they can smell it. When there is a need for outward things, for layering your clothes when you dress, <laughs> You know, just I'm just saying things that pop into my head. There's a lot of things. It could be just about anything. But when we demonstrate on the outside this need for validation from these outward things, likely what is happening is we're showing, without saying it, we're showing that my inner connection is weak. I'm not drawing that fulfilling validation from Christ. Therefore, I need these other props to prop me up. You know, and you can say all kinds of words about, I'm a Christian. But people can see right through that most of the time, I believe. <clears throat> all right. Wow. Is that clock right? It says 20 to 12. Am I reading that wrong? What time is it? Somebody tell me what time it is. 1037. 1037. Okay. <laughs> all right. Now let's look at how to do it. So we looked at how not to do it. Let's look at how to do it. Philippians chapter 3. I'm, we're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture today. I, I struggle with that a little bit because I hate to be turning around and around and around looking at Scripture. I prefer just sticking with one text for everything. But, so we're going to do this today with God's help. Philippians chapter 3. All right, now Paul is talking about what he used to get validated by. He didn't get validated by the nicest chariot and the nicest clothes, but what did he get validated by? Verse 4, Philippians 3, verse 4. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath whereof he may trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel. I was a yoder. I was fourth generation yoder of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews that's touching the law of Pharisee, Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Oh man, I, was, I had all my validation here. You know what he says next? Those things that used to be gained to me, Christ got a hold of me. Turned me inside out. What things were gained to me, those I counted loss. The stuff that, you know, mentally I have this picture of, here's all my gains and here's all my losses. I just, I moved it over to the other column. 
It's a loss. Yea, doubtless I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and do count them but dung, just a big pile of manure in comparison to what I have, that I may win Christ. The stuff that he lost, it wasn't even a loss to him. And, and I, I, if you read through, I'm just not going to read all the verses here. But going on down, you know this, these very familiar verses down, like in verse 13, I count myself not to have reprehension. I mean, you can just feel the passion in these verses. I count myself not to have reprehension, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, reaching for, straining unto those things which are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God. In Christ Jesus. Oh. That's what he cared about. You know. And even his ministry. You know what, he, you know what was more important than his ministry? His missionary efforts. Look at verse 9. And to be found in him. And verse 10. That I may know him. That's what was driving him. That's what drove all of his ministry. He just. It's just. It's, it's my. That continuous flow from Christ. And therefore, I'm a missionary. <laughs> therefore, I'm building barns. Therefore, I'm, I'm, I'm harvesting tomatoes. Whatever you're doing. Oh, I just think, man, here is, here is how to do it right here. We get a hold of this. It would just clear up so many other struggles. You know what we're doing? We're struggling around saying, man, is this a sin? Should I do this? I mean... I'm still a church member. We could just, there's higher ground, folks. God help us. You know, Jesus, I believe, was nondescript in his appearance, in his wealth, and his, his possessions. Isaiah 53, verse 2 says, He had no form nor comely. He wasn't even that handsome, I don't think. He had no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see them, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was nondescript. If he'd walk in here and sit down, he wouldn't look outstanding. That's one thing I've been, I have prayed already, Lord, help me. I don't want to be remembered. I was here for part of the week. I don't want to be remembered by my car. I don't want to be remembered by my haircut. <laughs> Whoops, you probably will remember that. I don't have much hair. <clears throat> I don't want to be remembered by my clothes. I don't want to, want to be remembered by my bank account. I, if someone would ask you that about me, that I wish you would say, you know, I, I don't remember. But I do remember that he loved the Lord. I want Christ to birth more of that in me. If you have influence in your church or anywhere for that matter, you must get your sense of validation and identity from that which is internal, from that which is not dependent upon the outside. It may not come from these outward things or circumstances. Okay. That is the first ingredient, a right source for my identity. 
Let's look now at the second principle. So that is one, you know, if you have that right, folks, identity, people who have this right are very influential. Is this true? And they're not doing it for the sake of, you know, I really want to influence and I want people to do all the things I think they should do. I would like to sort of manipulate them to do this. And so I'm going to do all this for that purpose. I want to manipulate Galen back there to be a better preacher and to study more and to, you know, spend more time with his family. So I'm doing it for, no, no, that's not why we're doing it. We're doing it like Paul, just to know him. But guess what happens when we do it? When, it, when the direction is this way, then, the, the, then what's happening this way is influential. The right source of identity, principle number one, talking about influence for youth and for all of us. All right, let's look at the second principle. I called it a battlefield mentality. I'll invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We're going to shift gears now and look at this second principle. A battlefield mentality. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. So you got your identity down now? This took 30 minutes. <laughs> and now we'll look at this one. 2 Timothy 2, verse 1. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We're looking at a battlefield mentality. And the things which thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Thou therefore, you, I'm talking to you, he's saying. Verse 3, thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. And here's our, here's our, our key verse, verse, verse 4. No man that warth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. Just going to stop right there. As a Christian, do you have that? Do I have that? That when I am... It's, when I say a battlefield mentality, what, basically what I'm talking about is I am on duty, I am responsible, and I am on duty. And when I am in Florida, I'm on duty. When I'm 70 and I'm talking about retirement or 65, I'm still on duty. When I'm youth and I'm not married and I have extra time on my hands and extra money on my hands, you're on duty. That's what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so we need to settle the question, first of all, who is Jesus to me? Verse 3 says there, a good soldier of Jesus Christ. A soldier of Jesus Christ. So Jesus has to be the, uh, he's the captain. Hebrews 2 verse 10 calls him the captain of their salvation. My Savior and Lord. Jesus is the captain. So as we look at how we arrive at, 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 at um, possessing this mentality It, 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 it's formed around, first of all, who I believe Jesus is, who he is to me. And I have to view him as the captain. 
Is he the captain of my life? It says in verse 4, he has chosen you to be a soldier. And I think of two models of salvation that I sort of hear about. One model is, it's kind of like I'm the captain. It's like choosing up softball teams. And Jesus is just sitting out there in the, you know, I remember we used to do this here. We'd stand out there in the grass and, you know, the two best players were the captains and the poor guy that was picked last. You know. But anyway, and so you always pick the best ones first. But anyway, so one model of salvation is like I'm the captain and Jesus is standing back there in the foyer patiently waiting for you to pick him to be on your team. You're the captain. I accepted Jesus. I picked him. And Jesus says, oh, whoopee, I get to be on your team. But I, I look here, and it, you know what? That's not the way it is. He, here's the other model of, 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 of salvation. He is the captain. Christ is the captain. He chooses me. He drafts you. Well, I guess we, we go onto his team voluntarily. He chooses us, just like he chose those 12 disciples. And at that moment, I lose my right to do the stuff I want to do. At that moment, I'm at his disposal. He has chosen me. And what has he chosen me for? Verse 4 describes our calling. It says, he has chosen us to be a soldier. So that's our calling. And it's, it's a calling that, that, that we come to it in a submission. And, and, and it's like, you know, I don't even know what all God is going to ask of me. But I'm, sub, I'm just coming with submission in my hands. You just tell me. I'll do anything. Just show me. I'm not very smart. Please help me to understand. Was it Mark Twain that said something like, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that I struggle with. It's the stuff I do understand. <laughs> and I think that's what God is most concerned about. You're young. You might think, man, I'm, I've only been a Christian a year. I, <laughs> what's he talking to me for? I'm not very mature. I don't understand. Well, what are you doing with the things you do understand? And God will show us more things along the way. So that is our calling. He has chosen us to be a soldier. Not to take in the salvation and then just go play volleyball for the rest of your life. Or go to Florida and play shuffleboard until you pass off the scene. Not that. I'm not saying you shouldn't play volleyball or shuffleboard. I think you understand that. But what I am saying is we're not... It's not this um, American dream Christianity. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a phantom. It's not real. Where you can have Jesus... And, and, and eat, drink, and be married both. No. You, you, you might be able to eat, drink, and be married. You're probably going to do that for lunch in a little bit. <clears throat> I think you understand what I mean. We're at his disposal. And how are we going to live up to that calling? He talks about that in verse 1. Thou therefore, my son. 
You need to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Some of you might lift weights, some of you might run, some of you might bike. You're getting strong physically. There's nothing wrong with that. But he says what you really need. See, did you see my calling in verse 4? It's really big. You need to find what it says in verse 1. You need to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then we come to perhaps, I think, the most key ingredient in this whole thing, in this battlefield mentality. Verse, it's, and it's hidden there in verse 4 where it says that he may please him who has chosen him. You correct me if I'm wrong. I tend to think of like, like a puppy dog. You know, when it, some of you have visited some of your houses, and the first thing that happens when I get there is this dog comes out wagging and wanting to jump on me and, and lick. He's just, and they're friendly, you know, they just want to, and, and really, it just seems like they just want to please their master. They get so happy, their tail wags faster and faster when they think they're pleasing you. And I think of how God spoke to Jesus several times in the Bible. Like at his baptism at the Mount of Transfiguration, God spoke right out of heaven and said, this is my beloved son. You know, some of us have had sons that didn't do the things we wanted. Did we stop loving them? No, we didn't. We still love them. But at that moment, we couldn't say, in whom I am well pleased. But God said to his son, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And so, is that our heart? That when we do that thing for the Lord, we do it because I just want to please him. I just want to know that when I did this, that, that it just made God smile. I'm, that's, my, that's what's driving me. That's what's motivating me. It's not, I'm trying to stack up brownie points so I can get to heaven someday when I die. I just want to please him. And when I know it, the smile of God upon my life, when I know that God is pleased, when I, I sense that in my spirit, his spirit witnesses with my spirit that I've pleased the Lord. What more reward do I want? That is so satisfying. That's what's driving me. And so I'm going to go out there and do that again because it felt so good to know that God was pleased with what I was doing. I love it that I may please him who has chosen me to be a soldier. A couple other things here, and then we want to close this part, this session. So we see the soldier's muscle in verse 1, be strong. We see his motivation that he may please him. We see his mentality in verses 3 to 6 where it says, endure hardness. You know, when others, young people, when others are making soft choices for short-term rewards, you make hard choices. And then he goes on and says, don't be entangled. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life. We can get so entangled with things, and, 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 and again, we typically, our first question may be, well, is it sin? You know what? Maybe it's debt. I know of some young people that have gotten wrapped up in a, in a car payment, and when it came time to, and, you know, maybe that's okay. But when it came time to, hey, could you, you know, we need a teacher in Belize. We need this or that. You know, I'd love to go but I'm kind of strapped financially right now. That's just one area. And sometimes for us, you know, maybe it's our business or whatever it may be as older folks. We get entangled 
And we say, well, is it a sin? But it is entangling. And so I think he was, he's telling us here, you know, our hobbies, our appetites, our finances. He's telling us, as a soldier, you may not. You know, you may have some of these things, but what you may not do is be entangled by them. Are you honest enough to know when you're getting wrapped up? So that's the muscle, his motivation, his mentality. And then his mission is found in verse 2. The things that thou have heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men. When you teach, see young people, when you, when you are the ones doing the teaching, and maybe it's just as you interact with your friends on a, on a level as youth. See, I, I would imagine there's some youth here that some of the rest of you youth would say, you know, I really appreciate brother so-and-so. Because, you know, he just, he rubs me the right way. He influences me. So that the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. You know, when, when, we're, when we're just handing out dry sawdust to people, <laughs> they don't want to pass it on to somebody else. When you're handing out the life of Christ and you become so infected yourself, somebody's going to say, man, I need to have that. I must have that. It's influential. And it's birthed out of, or part of it is birthed out of, this battlefield mentality. Principle number one, the right source of identity. And number two, a battlefield mentality. I'm just going to pause right now for a couple of songs and then uh, go into the next session after that. Love the message in that last song. <clears throat> Very fitting. Thank you, Clayton. Here's a little something I thought of in regard to the, what I was talking about, identity, in the first session. What drove that sermon? The first time I preached that sermon, and of course it gets tweaked every time I share it, but it was something that happened in my own life, and it was work-related, <clears throat> and it was about the position that I had at work. And I'm a swingman at uh, Newmar Corporation. I worked directly for one of the, the superintendents of production. And um, we had a layoff last, last spring, about a year ago, we had a layoff. And, you know, things have been going well for a long time, and all of a sudden, out of the blue, there's a layoff coming. We're dropping 20% production. And I immediately thought that <clears throat> there's two of us that work for Vernon as his swingmen, me and another guy. And I immediately started comparing his qualifications and mine, and I thought, oh boy, he's better than me. I'll probably get, you know, I won't lose my job, but I'll get put on the line somewhere. And I'll lose my golf car. And I'll lose the phone that I get to carry around. And I'll lose the freedom to take off as much for church work. All of these thoughts are rushing to my mind. And none of that, none of that happened. Um, but <clears throat> I was ashamed at how much I would have struggled with my identity. I'd had an identity crisis. If I'd have got put onto the line and just been a regular Joe like everybody else, it showed me something about myself. So it's not always just your clothes. It can be your it can be so many things. And it made me bring a sermon about identity. <laughs> so I'm still working on it. I'm still working on it. 
Youth with Influence. This is our second session this morning. Principle number three. The first principle was a right source of identity. The second principle was a battlefield mentality. And the third one is, that I have here today, is proper boundaries in sexuality. And I realize we have children here and a mixed audience here, and so I hope you're not afraid. I'm, I'm going to try to be very careful to be discreet in what is said here in this context. <clears throat> we talked earlier about being a soldier for Jesus Christ. Just a little bit ago we talked about that. <clears throat> so I'd like to talk to you now about one of the biggest battles, if not the biggest battle, you will ever face. I'm especially talking to you youth, but I'm talking to all of us. And it is the battle for sexual purity. Tim Keller said this, one of the biggest obstacles to repentance for revival in the church is the basic fact that almost all singles outside the church and a majority inside the church are sleeping with each other. I hope that's not true in your church. I, I'm sure it isn't true in your church. But this is typical in evangelical Christianity today. In other words, good old-fashioned fornication. <clears throat> Jeremy Euchre tells a concerning tale in his book, Premarital Sex in America, How Young Americans Meet, Mate, and Think About Marrying, that something on the order of 90% of young Americans will experience intimacy before getting married. Some might be asking, fornication? Really? That's the big hang-up? That's the biggest reason for not revival in the church? What about intellectual objections from science? Or postmodern philosophy? Or the church's history of violence? Or our consumerism or greed? But as C.S. Lewis wrote... There are few of Christianity's teachings more offensive and likely to drive people away from hearing the gospel than its sex ethic. Many college students and young adults don't want to turn to God because he has opinions on morality they find restrictive. Yes, God's standard is very strict. You know what it is? It's basically this. You may not have any expression of sexual gratification outside of a lawful marriage. <clears throat> but God is strict not because he wants to punish you and withhold pleasure from you. It's rather because he wants to spare you and me from the consequences of moral sin. And I'm ashamed to say I've walked in these shoes. I can, I, I'm speaking from experience this morning. You know, I heard this one time. <clears throat> Something like this. A father was trying to, or a preacher, I don't remember the context, totally, was trying to encourage youth to not become physically involved in their dating. And the question came up, well, what about, well, did you do that? And he had to say, no, I didn't. Well, then you can't tell us not to. 
And I had to think, if I was standing up here this morning to give you a talk about not throwing matches out into the woods when it's dry and starting fires, and I would, have, I would be standing up here with skin grafts all over my face and my hands, and I would say to you, now don't play with matches. You wouldn't say to me, well, who, who are you to tell me not to play with matches? I mean, you did. You would say, oh, man, look at that guy. Look how scarred he is. Look how ugly he is. I knew that was going to happen sometime this week. I am sorry about that. <laughs> um, you wouldn't say that. You would say, you would look at that and you would say, man, you would go home. Parents, you would go home and say, children, man, we saw this guy in church. He was so scarred. I mean, I can't go to sleep and not see his face. Don't play with matches. That's what we should say. The consequences of moral sin are devastating. There are few sins more shameful and more damaging to confess than moral sin. And I really believe this is one, one of the tools the devil has. You know what? If you're involved in moral failure today, you need to confess it. You need to be open about it. You need to get it out of the closet. Satan wants you to be so ashamed that it will keep you in bondage to that sin. And I'm telling you, young people, I know that youth struggle with this, but I know it's not just the youth. It's a battle that, you know, to have the proper boundaries in sexuality that we all will face until we die. Maybe you don't think sexual purity connects to the theme of youth with influence. Well, I think it does. It's an issue of stability. I believe it's hard to have influence without stability. And if all of us... Okay, I, I'm, I'm a man. I talk, I've talked to some young men. I've talked to older men. And I know that sometimes too many of us are struggling in this area. And I just believe if we could go up and down these benches right here and we could really be honest and really tell the truth and we'd say, man, how's, what's your percentage morally in your thoughts and your actions? What's your percentage? If we would go up and down these rows and it'd say 100% and it'd be really be true, wouldn't that be amazing? That's absolutely amazing. <clears throat> With that kind of stability, you can't not have influence, I believe. You know, to be unstable sexually prevents influence, I believe. It is hard to have influence without stability. If all of us would be batting 100% in this area, or at least it would be our, that our normal would be victory instead of defeat, how powerful that would be there would be an invisible stability that would prepare and allow us to be influential for the kingdom of God. If we would fight and win this battle, if we would fight and win this battle, I'm sorry. I do want to tell you this morning, this is a battle you can win. 
I know I've talked to men who have struggled and they, they deal a lot with shame and discouragement because they just can't win. I'm telling you, you can win this battle. The world has given this battle up a long time ago. And the church too often is losing this battle. But that does not have to be you. You can win. There is a joy and a blessing and a power that comes when we truly embrace and live up to God's standard for sexual and moral purity. I entitled this half of our session this morning to possess your vessel. That's taken out of the King James 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. You would turn there, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. And if someone could bring a little more water back up here, I promise not to spill it again sometime before the session is over. That would be nice. <clears throat> to possess your vessel. 1 Thessalonians 3. We're going to start reading in verse 12, chapter 3, and then move, continue on reading into chapter 4. <clears throat> verse 12. And the Lord make you. This is my prayer for you, youth. I'm especially talking to you this morning. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do towards you. To the end, or for this reason, for this purpose, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God. How many of you know, and don't raise your hand, but how many of you know what it's like to be a good confessor for moral failure. It's like I'm not really being victorious, but at least I'm a good confessor. And you know, I, there's, a, there's, a, there's a brother that I'm thinking of right now who struggles so much feeling forgiven. And I know God forgives 70 times 7. Hallelujah. I'm so glad. You know, he struggles with feeling forgiven because this pattern repeats and repeats and repeats. And he feels blameable. You see this word here in verse 13? To the end that he may establish your heart unblameable. This is what God is wants to do. That This is how you experience. There's a settled peace in your heart because you know in the area of sexuality, you are unblameable. God can't arrest you. He won't arrest you. The slate is clean. <clears throat> unblameable in holiness before God. Even our Father and look at this, to the end, see here's the goal, it's kind of like we talked about in the funeral message yesterday, to the end, the goal is this, here's the point out there in front, to be unblameable and holiness before God at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God will withhold pleasure from you if he can get you to experience this, pleasure at the end, <laughs> at his coming, unblameable at his coming. And now moving into chapter 4. <clears throat> furthermore then. So in light of all what I just said, basically he's saying here, furthermore then, we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you, I'm begging you, I'm pleading with you, that as you have received us of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, that you would abound more and more. You started well. <laughs> Thank you, Brother Norman. <clears throat> You started well, 
And I, I just want you to go on, that you would abound more and more. For we know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is a commandment of God. It's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. Here it is in verse 3. This is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Now that word fornication, in, in, in our culture, we tend to think of it as of somebody that was, before they got married, they got involved, they slept together, and they committed fornication. <clears throat> but the word is actually deeper than that. It comes from the, you probably have heard this already, it comes from the Greek word pornea, which simply, it's, it's a broad category of unlawful sexual activity. So if you're involved in other forms of impurity, don't think you're off the hook because you're not sleeping with someone. You're guilty. Still, if you're involved in pornea. <clears throat> in Galatians 5.19, where it gives those lists, it says, such that do these things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. It gives a list, in, includes other things. It says adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness. All of these things have to do with moral impurity in various forms. <clears throat> And I think pornea would just encapsulate all of that. So what can't we do? He said you may not. You should abstain. Abstinence means you just don't do any of it. You don't do a little bit of it. You don't do any of it. You abstain from pornea. This is God's commandment. What would that include? <clears throat> Here's a few things. I'm going to tell you stuff you already know. I'll just go through a few things, and it's probably not an inclusive list. It includes lust, according to Matthew chapter 5. If you, if you lust in your heart, you same as committed adultery in the eyes of God. You may not do that. You may not be involved in pornography, which is a, an ocean plague in this country, and it's very addictive. It's like a drug. <clears throat> Josh McDowell said this, of young adults, 18 to 24 years old, 76, this is just the average Joe in America, I guess. It's not necessarily out of the, oh, no, no, sorry, this is Christians. The average evangelical Christian, 76% actively, and these are Christians, actively seek out porn. In today's Christian culture, you may not do that. You may not give in to self-gratification. In Philip's translation, he words this verse, verse 4, or did I even get that far? That every one of you should know how to possess his vessel. That was the title of this session here, to possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. This is what Philip said. This is how he worded that verse. God's plan is to make you, I'm sorry, every one of you should learn to control his body, keeping it pure and treating it with respect, and never regarding it as an instrument for self-gratification. You may not do that. You may not indulge in fantasy and daydreaming of being in a relationship that presently is unlawful for you. Maybe you're married. Maybe you're unavailable because you're single. You may not. Flirting outside of dating or defrauding in dating. And by defrauding, I mean arousing passions that are unlawful to fulfill. You may not. And you may not, according to Galatians 5, you may not remarry after divorce because God considers that 
adultery. This is what you may not do. I believe that sexual sin against others in any form is one of the most damaging emotional hurts that anyone can ever experience. Defrauding. That's what I mean by defrauding. It is very, very damaging. Fornication, pornea, is a barrier to holiness, to usefulness, and it's even a barrier to our salvation. Phillips went on to say, God's plan is to make you holy, and that entails, first of all, a clean cut with sexual immorality. That was verse 3, his translation of that. <clears throat> I believe fornication is a gateway sin. I give an illustration of what I mean. I heard this from someone else. There was a college professor who, who uh, would, from time to time, students that had been his in years past would come back and visit with him, and he would ask them about their Christian life, about their spiritual walk. And if they would say, if they would answer something like this, you know, I'm really struggling. I'm not sure if God really exists. I'm just, you know, I'm just having doubts about faith. And you know what he would ask next? Who are you sleeping with? And invariably, the answer would be, how do you know? And his point was, when we begin to sin against our conscience, it's like, it's like this gateway sin that leads us then, led these youth to the point where they say, you know, I'm not even sure God is there anymore. Because every day they're pounding away with a hammer and destroying their conscience. It's a gateway sin. Then, if this is what we can't do, what may we do? What can we do? <clears throat> Verse 4 again, that every one of you should know how to possess his vessel. Every one of you. In sanctification and honor. I'm just going to keep reading a few verses. Not in the lust of concupiscence as the Gentiles who know not God. You see, that's, if that's what you're involved in, you're showing, you're, 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 the, the, the evidence that's coming out of your life is like you don't even know God. Because that's how people who don't know God act. Why are you acting that way? That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Because that the Lord is the avenger of all such. As we also have forewarned you. And testify, for God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. And then verse 8, he therefore that despiseth, in other words, the one who says, oh, that's a bunch of baloney. I don't believe that. I, I reject that. I despise that teaching. He therefore that despiseth, despiseth not man, but God, who hath also given us his Holy Spirit. Oh, you can reject what man says, if you want to. 
but you're rejecting God. <clears throat> Possess my vessel. You know, the other morning, Kathy asked me, would you like a cup of coffee? Is it a coffee morning? And I said, yes. <laughs> so she brought me uh, this cup. It was, it, was, it was pretty warm. The cup was fairly warm. The stuff inside the cup was even warmer yet. And so I carried it back to my room. And you know how I walked? Did I run? <laughs> no. I walked very carefully because of what was inside of that cup, this vessel. And so it is your job and my job to possess our vessel and to keep all that hot stuff inside of the cup. The desires of the body are subject to me and not me subject to them. I have a few friends, uh, unbelievers, that I've gotten acquainted with and I've interacted with, and every one of them has been divorced, remarried several times, involved in relationships. I remember one of them telling me, Calvin, you, you know, he, was, he was starting another relationship. And I was like, man, what do you say? What, what about what the Bible says here about, you know, and he said, yeah, I know, Calvin, but don't you, you want me to be happy, don't you? <laughs> you know, I, I, that's why I agree with that statement that I read earlier about the biggest barrier to revival. It is the thing that most people will never give up, even if they believe they're living in adultery and going to end up in hell, spiritually speaking. They will not give up this drug. I think it is one of the hooks that Satan has set the deepest of all and the hardest to unroot once one, someone has indulged. I just want to tell you this morning, if, you're, if you've indulged and you're in the bottom right now, I just want to tell you, you may be free. You can get out of that. Don't believe the lie. Satan says, you know, you are stuck forever in this. You're a slave to this. Don't believe that. If you will humble yourself and repent and confess, you can be set free. And your normal can change. You know, the Bible has a very high standard. You know what the standard is for sexual purity? You know what it is? I mean, if somebody's a, a baseball player, if he's batting 400, man, he is unheard of. 40%. You know what scripture says? What my batting percentage should be? Ephesians 5, 4, 3. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you. Wow. That's a high standard. I just want to say this. I think we should at least be able to say that my normal is victory. I have struggled. And you know what? I even fell one time. And last week, I looked, or I, whatever, I daydreamed. I read these books. It was a bunch of baloney. It stirred up desires in me that weren't right. I did. And I fell, and I repented, and I confessed. But my normal is, what I'm experiencing is, possessing my vessel. If that's not your normal, then 
be humble enough to ask somebody to help you. I, to me, I think this is one battle we can hardly win by ourselves. And Satan wants you to try that road first. <laughs> Do it by yourself. You know how embarrassing... You know, if I say, you know, I struggled this morning getting ready for church and the children were, you know, they were a little naughty and, and I, got, I raised my voice at my children. I'm sorry about that. I'm confessing that to you brothers this morning. You would all pat me on the back for my honesty. But if I confessed various forms of moral failure, well, first of all, I don't know if I ever would. <laughs> I'd be too ashamed. How can I develop purity? I just want to mention a few things. Hey, I believe perhaps this is a journey also, especially for someone who has been involved very deep. But I, I just want to challenge you young people. You've not fallen into any of this. Hallelujah. Don't stir up those, those appetites in there until it's time for them to be fulfilled in marriage. How do I develop purity? <clears throat> and it, it really, it really, it has, you know, when Jesus said, out of the heart proceeds all these things. You know what? It comes out of the heart. Somehow my heart has to change. I can take away the internet, and maybe you should. In fact, I believe there's a place for that, by the way. You know, sometimes I think, we think, you know, here, I, I have to have this internet. I have to have this poisonous snake. I'm carrying it around. What should I do with this carrying around this poisonous snake so it doesn't bite me? And you'd say, man, that is so ridiculous. Why don't you get rid of that snake? We don't have to have that, by the way. We don't have to. Jesus said, if your right hand or your foot offends you, cut it off. That's, but that's what I call external control. I think there's a place for that where, you know what? I need to be accountable to you. I need to cut that off. But really, what, what, what the target that we're heading at, it's changing my heart because it's out of the heart that all these things flow. How can I develop the inside? So I have three points I would like to encourage you to pursue as far as internal development. The first one is to pursue God. Does that sound trite to you? I hope not. I hope not. But you need to get past your two-minute devotionals in the morning, and I had to do my little thing for the day. It needs to be what I read in Philippians 3, that I may know him, developing that kind of a passion in your heart. James 4, verse 8 says, Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Jesus said, Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. You know, it is hard to pursue God when I'm taking in things that are killing off my appetite for Him. It is very, very hard to sustain that. A.W. Tozer said this, No shortcut exists. It is well that we accept the hard truth now. The man who would know God must give time to him. He should count no time wasted which is spent in the cultivation of his acquaintance. He must give himself to meditation and prayer for hours on end. So did the saints of old and so must we if we would follow in their train. Pursue God. 
I believe purity, you know, recently I was talking to a brother about some of the boundaries I have on my computer. And I said, I get up every morning, no one else is up. By the way, I've learned, just not sit in front of the computer when you're, having, you're trying to have your devotions. Because <laughs> you know what you're going to do? You're going to check email and read this and that. I've needed to learn to get away from that. Go sit in the kitchen. But I told him, I said, you know, I know all the passwords. And I was deeply involved in moral failure. So many, I'm so embarrassed about it, I want to tell you what that was in years gone by. But I said, I know all the passwords. I can turn it off. And I was so blessed recently in thinking about, well, why don't I turn it off? Because if I would put that stuff in front of me, it would fire up that flame again. I know it would. I said, you know, I've decided that. It's the fear of God. It's keeping me from doing it. I fear God. And I cannot do it. Oh, I know I could do it. But I'm not struggling with temptation to do it. Hallelujah. That's God's fault. God has helped me to develop a fear of God that I can sit in front of my computer. By the way, there's an accountability program on there that if I would, my brother in the church would find out about it, okay? So there is still that there, and I wanna, I'm going to keep that there. But I am so glad that I can sit there and not be wrestling with, it's one click away. You know what I mean? Pursue God. Purity has to be birthed and a love of Christ and a fear of God. Remember what Joseph said when he was tempted? Potiphar's wife. He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And I believe that it's one of the... the one of the greatest tools that God has given us is this right here. And where it's not just passing through and having my devotions. I'm looking for principles that will stabilize me in purity. I'm, I'm looking with intent as I get into Scripture. I think it's in here. We find, if we're looking with the right spirit, we will find power and strength. Pursue God. <clears throat> Can you turn to scriptures real quick? I'd like to look at another one. The second point is pursue service. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Pursue God is the number one, uh, talking about internal development. And the second one is pursue service. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 32. <clears throat> but I would have you without carefulness. He that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. There is a difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the Lord, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And this I speak for your own profit. This is for your good. Not that I may cast a snare upon you. I'm not trying to, I'm not, he's saying, I'm not trying to, to just, you know, make you walk around with handcuffs. I'm actually liberating you at this thought. Not that I may cast a snare upon you. 
but for that which is comely, for that which is good, that ye may attend upon the Lord without distraction. So in speaking to the youth, I'm directing this more at them this morning. <clears throat> if you are single, that's God's will for your life right now. That's God's will for you. And so then, instead of daydreaming about a relationship that you wish you could have, it's a hypothetical situation. <laughs> it's like we say in our house sometimes. Hypothetical might never happen. And, you know, we read these verses here in Corinthians. We say, oh, that's for those old single guys that never got married. You know, no, it's not. Before I was married, this was for me. Now, it is different now because I am married. Some people God does call to singlehood. It's a wonderful calling. It says they may attend upon the Lord without distraction. They can serve in ways that you and I can never serve. So it's, it's, it's you know, you shouldn't be sitting at home making quilts and saying, man, I wish Prince Charming would ride into my life and somehow give me a meaning and purpose in life. You shouldn't think that way. And so I just want to encourage you as youth, this is your calling right now. Embrace it. God's call for you right now is to, be, is to be single. How could I serve without distraction? Don't be Google-eyeing at the guys. Don't be flirting with the girls. Sure, be friends. But how could I serve without distraction? You know what a blessing it is when the young people show up and <laughs> I know they've done some stuff for my mom. They show up and rake her leaves and clean out the gutters and, you know, you know how amazing that is. You know what a testimony that is? You know what, how influential that is? Or are you, you know, on your phone, distracted by some guy? Now, I'm not going to ask Tommy how distracted he gets because he's getting married here pretty soon. <laughs> Pursue service. And the third one is, I want to wrap this up, pursue modesty. And I already read to you in the other session about identity out of 1 Peter 3. We're not going to turn to that. Remember where it said the meek and the quiet spirit? Pursue modesty. Pursue not, you know, you know what the world does? They take too much stuff off. When it comes to modesty, they take too many clothes off, right? That's how they're immodest. Do you know what? It's also immodest to put too much on, to adorn to put things on that have nothing to do with covering or the weather and staying warm. It's just simply decoration. Pursue modesty. Pursue not adorning the outside. And I think ladies tend to struggle with that more than men. Men want to be cool. Ladies want to be pretty. Is that true? I think that's how our flesh typically tends to function. And both of them are our struggle, things we can wrestle with. And a lady might tend to want to adorn and be... You know what? You're already beautiful, ladies. God has already made you beautiful. You don't need to adorn it. You know, here's an article that a, that a young lady wrote to guys about modesty. Because you see, so much, of the, so much of the dialogue about modesty tends to go over here to the ladies. I think that's appropriate because Scripture often refers it to the ladies. And I think it's because it's a weakness or a tendency, a temptation for ladies. But here's what a lady said. The guys who say they want girls to cover up while showing a flippant attitude about wearing modest clothes themselves 
do not provide any motivation for dressing modestly. So I would say, guys, you like being cool? You know what? You're going to hinder these girls. Pursue not the outward adornment. Pursue the inward adornment. Pursue modesty. And modesty, where does it come from? I think it comes from humility. It comes from an attitude, a meek and quiet spirit. And it says God values it. The world isn't valuing it at all, but God values it. And humility, it's, it's really, you know what it is? It's a non-self-focus. And you know what sexual morality is? Self-focus. What I want out of it. It is so the opposite. So internal development as far as the proper boundaries in sexuality is pursue God, pursue service, and pursue modesty. <clears throat> to sum up, my brothers, I'm going to read you now what Philip's translation out of this passage in uh, Thessalonians. To sum up, my brothers, we beg and pray you by the Lord Jesus that you continue to learn more and more of the life that pleases God, the sort of life we told you about before. You will remember the instructions we gave you then in the name of, of the Lord Jesus. God's plan is to make you holy, and that entails, first of all, a clean cut with sexual immorality. Every one of you should learn to control his body, keeping it pure and treating it with respect, and never regarding it as an instrument for self-gratification, as do pagans with no knowledge of God. You cannot break this rule without in some way cheating your fellow man. And you must remember that God will punish all who do offend in this matter. And we have warned you how we have seen this work out in our experience of life. The calling of God is not to impurity, but to the most thorough purity. And anyone who makes light of this matter is not making light of God's ruling, of man's ruling, but of God's commandment. <clears throat> Young people, older people, <laughs> winning the battle for more purity is perhaps the most amazing thing you will ever do. May God bless you as you continue to find the right boundaries in sexuality. <clears throat> I want to look at one more principle. I'm aware of what time it is. And so um, I, would like to co- I would like to cover this. Uh, but I want to be sensitive to the time. <clears throat> the last principle, I just refresh us again what we've talked about so far. Proper sense, a right source of identity, a battlefield mentality, the proper boundaries in sexuality. And the last one is, I call it responsibility, owning the responsibility for the outcome in my church. <clears throat> Now, invite us to turn to John 17 real fast. Let's turn to the high priestly prayer in John 17. I want to define in a little bit exactly what I'm talking about here. But uh, I just want us to see how Jesus modeled for us this very principle, how he felt responsible for the outcome. And I guess I know what it feels like to come to church. And you know, you know what the biggest thing that changed about me when after I was ordained nine years ago? I didn't become more righteous all of a sudden. <laughs> but I felt more responsible all of a sudden. 
And ever since then, I've been thinking about the question, why don't we all feel that way? Well, obviously, pastors do feel more responsible, and they should. They better. We better. But you know what? What would happen if all of us, if the ministers are at 100% of that mentality, and the rest of you would be at 75 or 80? How would that change our church? How would that change your church if the young people, you know, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be that they're walking in the door shouting hallelujah, and that might be all right too. But they are walking with something internally, an attitude that says, you know what, I feel responsible for how this thing turns out. I feel responsible for the situation that's going on in my church right now. I feel responsible for this. What could I do so that this thing works out well in the end? What could I do so that attitudes would be right on both sides in the end? You know what? I feel responsible for the outcome. You know what? If you would give yourself to that, that's probably the most powerful that is transformational in a church. John 17, I'm just going to skip down over a number of verses. And I want, to just, I want you to, what I want us to see here is how Jesus himself modeled what he's asking us to do. Responsibility. Owning the responsibility for the outcome. <clears throat> All right, let's look first at verse 4. Jesus is praying to his Father and he says, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. So Jesus is saying here, the thing you call, I wasn't here for my own, doing my own thing. No, no. I understood what your thing was, and I did it. And it brought glory unto God because I, did, I was here for your purpose and not mine. Now, verse 6. What else did he do? I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. In other words, he's saying, I have fulfilled my responsibility. I was supposed to show who you are and your word to all of these that I'm responsible for. And, Brother Paul, you are responsible it's not just Rich and Sam at the chapel and Leon and Galen and Jero at Bethel. You are also responsible at a certain level to manifest your name unto the men that thou gavest me. You see, those, those men are entrusted to you. Those, those sisters are entrusted to you. I'm giving them to you and you are to manifest. You are, in other words, you're responsible. And Jesus is saying in verse 6, I did that. He wasn't boasting. He did it. Now look down to verse 9. I pray for them. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. Verse 12. While I was with them in the world, while I was with them in the church, you know, someday God might call you back to Peru, Brother John. You know, some, not all of you will be here. God doesn't put all the salt on one pile. But while I was with them, don't, so what I'm saying is, don't say, well, you know what? I might leave. So therefore, I withdraw my thing for responsibility. Oh, well, I'm here for now. But since I might leave, I withdraw myself from being responsible. I'm withdrawing my nomination for responsibility. That's not what Jesus did. Verse 12. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name, those that thou gavest me. I have kept, and none of them is lost, but the son of perdition. And then I really like verse 19, where he says, For their sake, not for my sake, for their sake, 
I sanctify myself. I cut off that which would hinder what's for their sake. I feel so responsible. I'm willing to do with less. I'm willing to come around more. I'm willing to be at prayer meeting every Wednesday night. I'm willing to whatever it takes because I feel responsible for the outcome. For their sake, I sanctify myself that they also might be sanctified through the truth. What I'm talking about here is not what you're doing. It's an attitude. It's something that's up in here. Or maybe I should say down in here. If you don't feel responsible for the outcome, I can identify with that. I'm not here to pound anybody that doesn't feel that. But what if you did feel that? What if you asked God to birth that in you? I'm telling you, it's transformational. I I think this principle here is is probably the most powerful one of all four. If we all possess this. While I am here, some of you may move on. And, And I hope nobody will hit you with a stick if that happens. I hope there is love and compassion and goodwill if that happens. Let's not condemn those that are, that are different than us. You know, I'm, I'm just responsible here. That's what I'm responsible for. I'm responsible for this outcome. But if we all had that, can you imagine how it would transform the church? Because it's not just figuring out whose fault it is that this has happened. It's figuring out You know what? This has happened. We are all responsible. What could you do? I could pray for them. I'm just 15. What can I do? I can't do anything. Look what Jesus did. He said, I pray for them. Because I feel responsible. Would to God that we would allow him. I think God wants to birth that in us. I think it is us that put up the barriers of whatever indifference or resentment that God cannot birth that in us. And so when you try to work through issues in the church, this ingredient is missing. It is almost impossible to come to a reasonable conclusion because we're not bringing that hidden ingredient to the table. Does that make sense to you? This attitude is rare. And I would say, I believe it's even more rare when youth feel this way. You want to bless your church? You don't have to teach more Sunday school more often. That might be okay. But possess this attitude. You will bless the socks off of your church. <clears throat> I'm just going to say this. I assume, I don't know this, but I assume some of you that maybe are here this morning are considering if this is what you want for church. I think that's a very important question that you should, don't, I'm not here to try to guilt you, and I hope none of us are, to try to guilt people into doing this or that. You need to hear from God about that question. You should very carefully consider that question. It may be that you can better fit into God's kingdom somewhere else. 
But I would say this. I believe the first question to ask is not, is this what I want? Hmm, is this what I want? Now, the first question to ask is, is this what God wants? I wonder if this is what God wants. Oh, boy, this is what he wants. And I don't think I do. But I think this is what he wants. Oh, man, I'm in a dilemma. I'm like Jesus in the garden, you know. God's will is to go to the cross. I don't want to. You see, the most important question is, is this what God wants? Can you surrender yourself to that? Could you be okay with that? George Mueller said this, in learning how to discern the will of God. This is powerful. He had six points. You should look it up. How to ascertain the will of God. Look it up on Google sometime and read all six of the points. But here's the first one. It's so powerful. Discerning God's will. He said, I seek at the beginning to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. Nine-tenths of the trouble with people is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the Lord's will, whatever it may be. When one is truly in this state, it is usually but a little way to the knowledge of what his will is. I think that's true. I have talked to people that have made strange decisions. And you know what they always say? Well, we prayed about it. You know what I want to say? Did you follow this principle first? Did you get your heart into such a state that you had no will? You were indifferent. Lord, I just don't know. Just show me. You know what? We're so prejudiced to our own fleshly desires and leanings. Then we pray and we think God is pushing us out the door or wherever. I just want to encourage you young people. If you feel like God wants you to be here, think this way. With the resources that I have, the stage of life that I am in, I accept responsibility for the outcome of this church, for its health, for its growth, for its continuing existence. In closing... Identity, mentality, sexuality, and responsibility. Christian influence is God being able to release the pressure of the Holy Spirit through me.